Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi there, podcast listeners. This week it's Esther with Miriam Soyla Perez. That's probably a terrible pronunciation. That was Sorry. actually pretty good. <laughs> And uh, we're podcasting without our beloved Sarah this time, but um, uh, she's always with us in spirit. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, our audience and let you know that we do have a Patreon page on our website. And if you're interested in sponsorship on any level, please check that out. And otherwise, we're going to get started. So I was made aware of Miriam uh, messing around, seeing what's out there. And because her uh, website is radicaldoula.com, <laughs> I thought, well, she needs to be on our show for sure. <laughs> nice. So we're going to just launch in and I'm going to let Miriam tell her story. Which story do you want, Esther? <laughs> how about how you came to be where you are now? Oof, how I, I think you only have an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Um, well, no, this is a, this is a podcast about parenting and birth. I'll keep it kind of focused on that aspect of my work. Um, so I got into birth work and doula work specifically in college. I went to college with um, the idea of being pre-med and specifically really was interested in being an OBGYN. I was just one of those kids who was fascinated with birth and would like look at my friends um, like health books at sleepovers, that kind of thing. Like I just had a fascination with uh, with pregnancy and birth from a young age without real any sense of where that came from. I didn't have any, um, I didn't have any younger siblings. I didn't have anybody in my life who was in that world. But for some reason I was, I was fascinated with it. So I went to college and was like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an OBGYN. And then I got um, sidetracked by organic chemistry, which <laughs> happens to a lot of people. And like when I go give talks at college campuses, that always gets a big laugh because so many people have had that same experience. Um, so I was like, I don't know about this whole pre-med thing, but um, I was lucky enough to end up in a class that talked about the anthropology of reproduction, which was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I saw a video that is kind of old now, but it's it was called um, Born in the USA. Have you ever seen it, Esther? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like birth people have seen it of a certain age, but like the people coming up now, you know, they see the business of being born on Netflix, but this is mm -hmm. like, you have to go to the library and get a VHS tape, I think. Um, and it, it chronicled three different birthing environments in the U S it compared home birth midwifery to a birth center in hospital in a, in like upper Manhattan to um, a OBGYN in a hospital. And I walked out of that class where we watched the documentary and was like, that just changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, there was just something that really um, politicized me around what I felt like was the really um, wrong way we were handling birth in the U.S. And so it set me down a whole path around that issue. Um, I, I looked into it academically, but then, of course, I was like, well, I should be a midwife, right? Like, this makes so much sense. And I went and spent some time with a midwife who was an alum of my college. And she was like, you know, if you really want to be a midwife, like, you should be a doula first because that's a way that you can really get a sense that this is something you want. She was one of those people who was like, you should be a midwife if you can't be anything else <laughs> because yeah. it's a hard life, right? Like, because it's, it's challenging and, you know, it's a difficult uh, career path. And so I think her, her perspective was like, if this is what you have to do, then you should do it, but you should make sure. Good advice. Yeah. Right. I feel like it's probably true about a lot of things. Um, so yeah. And that's a shout out to Robin Churchill who's the midwife that gave me that advice. And so who's now doing like amazing work in, 
Africa and other parts of the world, co- kind of educating midwives and doing all sorts of stuff with family planning. Um, so I went and did a doula training and I did it in Philadelphia. Um, and this was like over 10 years ago now and with a donor training and it was a really like lovely experience. Um, just felt like exciting to kind of be learning this skill set and to feel like there was something that I could um, kind of jump in and do without uh, having to go become a midwife um, and supporting people during pregnancy and childbirth. So um, then I, I worked as a volunteer doula. I've, I've never done doula work as a profession. I've only done it as kind of activism. Um, so I did some volunteer doula work in a hospital in North Carolina. Um, and I started to get more politicized around it, not just around like the pol- political questions of like what's wrong with how we do childbirth in the U.S. and over medicalization and whatnot, but also um, just the, the broader politics of pregnancy and birth, particularly when you talk about folks from marginalized communities. So mm-hmm. some of the women I supported in the hospital were immigrant Latina women, Spanish speakers. My family parents are immigrants from Cuba, so I'm bilingual. And um, so I was able to support them um, primarily with language support, to be honest, but I was also obviously doula work. And so then I started to see some of the political issues that I felt like were left out of my doula training um, because of that idea of like, well, doulas, here's the role of doula and doulas are not interpreters and they're not this and they're not that, which is true in a in an ideal world, but in a real world, if you're the only person in the room who speaks both languages, you are going to act as an interpreter um, because hospitals, you know, they use phone interpreters for paperwork and that's it. Right. So <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most, most hospitals, um, you know, they're limited in how many interpreters they have person, people personnel wise. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the experiences I had is that they would bring the interpreter on the phone um for paperwork, yeah, for yeah. legal moments, but so the, the legal moments, right? But the rest of the time, that's it. And there were some um, people in the medical staff who spoke Spanish, but they were very select. They weren't interpreters in that they would they would speak to each. This was a teaching hospital. They would speak to each other in English and only selectively communicate to the patient in Spanish. And so there's a whole conversation happening in the room about her health that's not being communicated to her, and that was really frustrating. And that was. So, you know, you can imagine what that would be like if, if you were in that situation, right? That it's really frustrating. And then it's, it's, uh, you know, you're in labor. So like, there's so many things that are frustrating. So all of these different pieces sort of started to politicize me a little bit more around, like, there's lots of layers here about the challenges in pregnancy and birth. It's not just this question of medicalization or this question of hospitals being maybe not the right place for everyone kind of thing. So, um, I could tell the story in an hour, so I'll kind of fast forward. So I, I ended up getting more into activist work. Um, I didn't end up kind of going down the midwifery path. I stayed doing doula work as an activist and then started doing kind of nonprofit activism and advocacy, working in the Latina community around reproductive rights and justice and access to abortion and contraception and lots of different things. Um, And that's when I started the blog Radical Doula because I wanted to talk about a bunch of different ways, a bunch of my, my politics and my identities and how that all made sense to me and, and all the intersections. So that it was actually 10 years ago now that I started that blog, which is wild. Um, That's impressive. Yeah. And so in the 10 years since, you know, I've, these days, my focus activist wise is more on writing. Um, and I've become a journalist and do writing about lots of different topics, including reproductive health and maternal health. Um, but focus a lot on the issues of race and racism and how that impacts um, people during people's lives generally, but particularly looking at pregnancy and birth as one place where race and racism really impacts people's experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of my research these days and, and my journalism. I also did a TED Talk um, about six months yes. ago that focuses on listen that. Listen to so, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a- Excellent TED Talk, everybody. Please listen to it. It's fantastic. So that's a lot, but some little bits of my story. Yeah, well, gosh, um, so many things I want to now maybe zero in on. Uh, As you know, probably I have a background. I just I have a BA in anthropology as well, which is, yeah, it's part of my journey as well uh, in terms of identifying in high school that I wanted to be working with women and babies. Right. 
uh, and people telling me, oh, you should be an OBGYN. And I, and I knew like, no, thanks. Not for you. But I didn't know what. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I just got pregnant. <laughs> okay. Found out. And then I found out what. <laughs> One path. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm thinking about an interview we did with Kimberly Aller-Seals, who wrote the book, um, The Big Letdown, which I we've recommend to everyone and continue want to continue to because breastfeeding is such a critical aspect of the fourth trimester and beyond and she does an amazing journalistic job of the history and current issues around that aspect of the postpartum period Mm -hmm. And your work is, I think, so much in alignment with what she's also doing. It's community-based. It's a way to address the racism in our system. And uh, it's just, just, just impressive. So I mentioned that not to draw attention away from the work you're doing, but to show that in our world, there are these parallels. This work is being done, needs to be done. And this is a political statement, but I'm somebody who got to be 57 years old and never learned to speak Spanish, let alone any number of languages that would be a supportive aspect of the work that I do. Right. Right. This is America. You do not have to learn any other language. Unless you're an immigrant and then you do. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. You, you have to learn English, right? (laughs) You have to learn English, but other languages outside that, right. Are are optional. Right. Yeah. And I was so appreciative of what you were saying in terms of, how various professional people comport themselves vis-a-vis their clients. You made a very interesting contrast between what you are there to do as the doula and what the other staff, how they're operating. And I think... What resonates for me is that I, too, with English speakers, find myself watching while and witnessing this kind of behavior that in front of a woman who is in labor or in whatever way terminating a pregnancy, she is being talked about before and whether she's talked to and that the languaging of all of this process is so interesting. And that's an anthropological engagement, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. So I'd love for you to talk more about how that is for you. Right. And what it means. Right. I'm curious, were you like really influenced by Robbie Davis Floyd too? I know a lot of like birth people who did answer that. Right? Like, I'm gonna have to be very embarrassed by your question. I think she's phenomenal. Yeah, I've seen her speak. Mm-hmm. I've never read her books. Oh my god! Sorry, I know, yeah. crazy, right? And even <laughs> I'm yeah. right in line with her. Yeah, I'm sure you'd agree. That's so funny. I mean, I did. I did anthropology as my, yeah, my focus. I ended up majoring in it and I wrote a thesis about my work um, in that hospital, like as a doula, I sort of was like a mini ethnography, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, so I used her book, one of her books really heavily. So, Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems with our healthcare system and the model and the ways in which patients are treated. And I think that some of those problems cross race and class and they're just high they're just exacerbated sometimes when you add those dynamics in so yeah you're right that like if you're at a teaching hospital like 
they're going to have a conversation about you. They might have a conversation about you to each other in the room um, that they wouldn't have that that doesn't include you, right? That is about you. Although, you know, I, I will say that I had a more recent experience in a, in a teaching hospital when my partner was hospitalized for a week for a health issue. And they actually made a really big point of they didn't talk to each other in front of us um, in the room. They talked to each other outside of the room and only ever had a conversation in the room that was like directed toward um, him and his care. So I don't know if that's and totally different hospital than why did my doula work. So I wonder if that's changing, right? If they're, if they're getting more sensitive about that dynamic around. But you're saying that you've experienced it more recently, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but in a teaching yeah, hospital. In teaching hospitals, yeah. But I think there's still a dynamic. There's still a difference in that, like, the patient can follow along in the conversation, right? If she understands English. So it's still rude, I think, and, and, and a problem with our model that, that she's not, that the conversation is not including her or, or centered around her. Um, but um, if you can't even speak the language they're speaking, then you have no idea. So in the example I'm thinking about, the client, it was her fifth labor. She was an immigrant from Central America and she got to the hospital and the labor stopped. And it was sort of like, why is the labor stopped? You know, almost like maybe it's because she had to do two hours of paperwork, but, um, but her labor had stopped, right? And she had four, maybe. right, maybe she had four other vaginal births before this, right? Um, so it turns out that the baby was breech. And so they're doing the ultrasound and talking about the baby being breech to each other in English. And she has no idea what they're saying. So it's like, how horrible is that, right? That they're not even communicating to her what's going, what they're finding. And obviously they did at the end of it, but they had a whole back and forth about it without translating as they were going because this this resident spoke Spanish, this white guy, he did speak Spanish. So he, in some ways it was worse because he got to choose what he, what he translated. Whereas if there had been an interpreter, an official interpreter standing in the room, my understanding is that they would translate all of the conversation to her, right? So she had no idea what was happening and there's, you know, an ultrasound and... And she really didn't want a C-section. Um, and she ended up having one because in this hospital, they don't do, you know, they don't do breach. Right. I mean, most people don't anymore. So anyway, so I think when you add a dynamic like race or class or language ability, it just, um, it really makes it, it worse. And so that I'm standing there as a doula, you know, pretty new doula, pretty young with my doula trainer in my ear being like, you're not an interpreter. And I wasn't an interpreter is an official role in a hospital. I was not a certified interpreter. But I speak both languages. Um, so I'm sitting there just having to decide what do I communicate about this conversation to her. And this, you know, on top of the fact that the medical team and the resident were not like huge fans. They're kind of like, who are you? Why are you here? Even though I was a volunteer with a volunteer doula group in the hospital, it was based in the hospital, run, run by a, um, a CNM who was working as a labor and delivery nurse. Um, so anyway, all of these things to say and you know, all the ways in which, um, these dynamics play out in, mm-hmm. in these and are complicated and are very complicated. Yeah. Well, having had that experience, Miriam, where have you taken it? Like, what do you feel about it now? So I've, um, I guess my approach over the years has been, I found that like doing one-on-one work as a doula didn't feel satisfying on its own for me. Like I wanted to do work. I think I'm drawn to do work at a at a different level, like at a level that reaches more people, I think, than just like individual work. You know, I can find individual work to be very fulfilling, but it doesn't satisfy me in the bigger picture. And so I started this blog, Radical Doula, 10 years ago to try and talk about some of these things around race and class and my experiences as a, as a Latina and as a child of immigrants and as a person who did, was pro-choice in doing doula work and also a queer person doing doula work, like all these different identities. And so I think my approach over the years has been more about doula education. So I wrote a book called The Radical Doula Guide. Um, it's like a, it's kind of like a well-designed zine. It's about 80 pages. Um, I self-published it. And it's, the subtitle is A Political Primer for Full Spectrum Pregnancy and Birth Support. And so the idea was like, well, my doula training, while it was lovely, had a lot of things missing from it. And I realized that quickly when I started actually doing dual work. And so um, I wanted to try to fill that gap, um, fill some of those gaps in doula education so that at least doulas might have a way to approach some of the political questions that uh, come into play, particularly if you're working with populations who aren't straight, white, 
an upper middle class, right? Like mm-hmm. I, it felt like the doula training was the silent sort of un, unspoken thing in the room was that that's who our client base was and that we were all going to be doing doula work as a business and that these were the parents we're going to be working with. And so when you take that assumption off the table, there's a lot of things you need to know about and talk about. And so that that's been my sort of attempt to to start that conversation for doulas. Can I make a connection here? Yeah, sure. I'm just fascinated by one thing that you said twice. And that is that you, in your ear, you heard you are not an interpreter. And the connection I want to make, now I, I never took a doula, birth doula training. Because I came up through a midwifery apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So I felt like <laughs> that would have been gilding the lily in some odd way. Yeah, I think you had this experience you needed probably. <laughs> yeah. But I have never had that voice in my head that I'm not an interpreter. In fact, I tell my clients, I will act as your interpreter. If you do not understand something, I will explain it to you. Which is different than being an, a language interpreter, right? Of course. Except, let's face it. Yeah. Part of the whole trajectory of Western medicine has been that kind of, like, speaking Latin in the Catholic Church so nobody can understand you, right? <laughs> Bless their hearts. They're they're speaking another language, right? And it's about elitism, uh, right? Yeah, they they want and it. it is. They want it to be inaccessible. I, yeah, right. No matter what your social class is, they are the class separate from you when you walk into their culture. Okay, so again, another layer of exactly what you're showing us about how um, women are another class and pregnant women, the more so, regardless of what outcome they want for their pregnancy, whether it's to end it or to see it through, you know, to parenthood. I think it's a fascinating aspect of our culture. And I really, really appreciate you for pointing to it and pointing to how much deeper and affecting it is if you're not in a position where your first or second or even third language isn't English, let alone medicalese. So I really appreciate you bringing that to the table. Um. Yeah, thank you. Talk more to us about your your work from the standpoint of the the queer community and how you like to interface there. Yeah, so it was something that, you know, I was sort of actually kind of around the same time I became a doula, I also came out and so um not not unrelatedly, but um so then it was a part of my identity and my experience and also something. So there were a lot of things that I felt weren't being talked about in like the birth community, the midwifery community, the the doula community. Um, and that was one of them was sort of queerness and queer people and how we fit into the that work and the fact that I was a doula and I was queer and it made sense to me. And um, even a doula who's also like identifies as gender nonconforming. So there was lots of ways, right? Like the sort of stereotype of a doula who's like hippie earth mama thing, you know, like that's not me on like many, many fronts. So mm-hmm. wanting to kind of say, well, this is why, this is why I do this work. And this is why um, these are all things that make sense. So that's kind of where the radical doula, the idea of being a radical doula came from was all these different points. So, um, and, you know, it, it hasn't, I think the ways in which it plays in are mostly just about participating in these conversations around um, how do we make sure that our work and our environments are accessible to queer and trans people and how do we um, 
what does it look like to, you know, again, going back to doula education, sometimes I feel like a lot of my audience for Radical Doula has been sort of straight white doulas, right, who are looking to be more politically aware or more sensitive or more, you know, they're they have a radical politics and they want to know how to like incorporate that into their work. And so like in the, in the radical doula guide, I have sections about, about race and about class and about immigration and incarceration, but also about gender and sexuality and sort of explaining how do those things impact people's birth experiences and what might you need to take into consideration as a doula. So language is a big thing for queer and trans people is just like making sure that we, um, follow the lead of the people that we're working with around how they want to talk about themselves, their pregnancies, their families, their bodies. So kind of basic things, but we can take those things for granted, especially I think the birth world can be a little like, again, like hippie earth mama sort of thing. Um, So Mm -hmm. there can be a lot of feminine this and, you know, and I found that stuff alienating when I was doing my doula training and stuff around like, you know, I haven't had children. I've never been pregnant. And, um, this idea that like, because I'm a woman, I like know how to support another woman. Like, and while I think there's a lot to be said about the knowledge I do have just as a human being about how to support another human being and being socialized female clearly plays into that. I don't necessarily believe that there's some inherent knowledge that I have as a woman, because that to me leads to sort of uncomfortable biologically essentialist ideas about gender, you know, that don't sit right with me. So so to counteract some of that and try to instead talk about um, talk about doula work without necessarily making it about gender. Um, and yeah, so those are kind of some of the ways in which it's played into my, my work. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. And uh, having participated in everything you mentioned at some point in my career, on some level, I think you're really naming a set of things that we all do well to question in our culture, whatever our situation vis-a-vis, whether or not we have kids, right? Whether or not we find ourselves pregnant with someone or not with somebody or any of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, people like, you know, feminists sort of sometimes say like, well, if a woman was in the white house, like everything would be different. And it's like, I don't believe there's anything inherent about being a woman that makes you a good person. You right. know, like, well, and we have plenty of examples. Right. There's plenty of women worldwide politically who do terrible things. Right. So <laughs> socialization matters, but it's not, you know, and there are biological influences to gender, right. Hormones and things like that. But, let's not get it twisted. Like it's not, it's not that men are better than women, that women are better than men. It's that, um, that we're all dealing with like the limitations of, of the ways our gender restricts who we can be and mm-hmm. how we can be in the world. You know, so. Do you want to talk about that from an organic Ken standpoint? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I'm so nerdy. I know. Did, I you, love... did you do Orgo when you were in? I did not. No, no. It's really unfortunate but because I, it's such a weed out and it's really, how many doctors actually use it ever in their practice, you know? Yeah. Well, I I will say, I think that, and you just mentioned this, that every human being is on a spectrum and that's because we're hormonal. Mm-hmm. That's not only because we're hormonal. Right. But what's so interesting about hormones is that you can't tell what somebody's doing hormonally by looking at them. Yeah, most right? of us have you no might idea get some clues. What our, what our hormones are, unless we have some sort of metabolic issue or something, right? Like we right. never know. We never yeah. know. It's, Esther, can I ask you a question? <laughs> can I turn the, turn the right tables ahead. on you? <laughs> so tell me, like, what's, what's the community that you work with as a doula look like? Like, who's your... Who are your the families that you work with mostly? Well, mostly mm-hmm. people who are middle and upper middle class for San Francisco. Mm. You know, I've been doing this a long time and I charge a lot for what I do. 
and it's still not going to be able to retire. Right. Yeah. It's a hard business. It's a really hard yeah. business. Yeah. But on the other hand, what's really wonderful about living in a place like San, San Francisco is that it's common enough that people who come to me and, and who can afford my services or who I'm willing to shift my, my fees for are people who come from different countries, have different language groups. And so that's always wonderful. Uh, my days of volunteer work were mostly a, amongst home birth uh, clients in a rural county. So rarely monolingual non-English speakers. However, uh, amongst the midwives, we did have a nice modicum of Latino families, which, you know, because it's a rural county. So, uh, and are most of your clients now, like your postpartum clients, are they mostly white families? Yeah, I would say white would be the dominant, uh, grouping. Yeah. And then sometimes I have to be careful (laughs) because for instance, it's common actually that I will have one or both if I'm working with a couple who have one of their parents who's from another country, right? For instance, I'm working with a mom whose mother's from America or the U.S. and whose father's from Venezuela, right? So that's actually not all that unusual for me, you know? common to have one or more parent or grandparents from Europe. Uh, So, yeah, which isn't to brag. I mean, it's still woefully, (laughs) you know, uh, unbalanced from a sociopolitical standpoint. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> sure. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, and I also am, I I wouldn't say I'm directly fortunate, but I feel indirectly f- fortunate to live in a community where doula work, birth doula work especially, has become quite popularized. And we have a way that young people who want to be doulas can come up through a volunteer system through the general hospital and be working with families that would otherwise have no access to doula care. Yeah. I think the thing that we haven't sorted out well in this community of course people have heard me on this podcast say this is true everywhere we have not sorted out a way for women and their families in this broader culture to have skillful postpartum care you know people are on their own it's all about the birth And then you're on your own. Just when things really get very challenging. Yeah. Yep. Um, Yeah. And there's a, there's a little bit of controversy in the doula world. I don't know if you've probably followed this, but around sort of that pipeline of like volunteer programs being places where new doulas get experience and offer services. Um, And I mean, I was part of that, like the program Mm -hmm. I did 
I, I was straight out of my doula training, so I didn't have any experience. And there was some like a sort of apprenticeship in that, like, I think my first couple births, I was with another doula, but it was pretty limited, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that the question is, well, then are we giving, you know, people who don't have access to doula care through their own means, less experienced and less quality care um, as because they're volunteer pipelines, right? So almost right. To, almost mimicking the teaching hospital model, right? right? Where people who don't have the means to pay have to be sort of learned on. Right. So it's a challenging dynamic, although um, mm-hmm. still important on many levels. And so finding ways for those programs to be well run and, and well mentored so that the care that these doulas are giving is still quality care. And what would you imagine in an unfortunately capitalistic country would be a way for that to happen? So I think the answer to this problem depends on what the question is. So is the question, how do we get a doula for every mom? Is the question, how do we make sure that every person who gives birth is well supported? Is the question, how do we address the fact that black women are four times more likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth than white women, right? Like mm-hmm. of I, the I same like, socioeconomic the same class. Yeah. That even when you, even when you account for income and, and stat class status, right. Black women are still more likely than white women, even who are middle-class to have all sorts of problems during pregnancy and childbirth. Yeah. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really stark. And so I think that's, the que- you know, so if the question, and I think often the assumption is that the question among doulas is a doula for every mom. How do we get a doula for every mom? And I think that's totally unrealistic. And I wonder if it'll even be effective because I think a doula for every mom, and I know this is a controversial thing to say as a doula, and I recognize that because I've never made a living as a doula, I have privilege in, in saying this without having to like, I'm not, I'm not challenging my livelihood, but I'm going to say it anyway, you know, which is that um, I think if we have a doula for every mom, all we're doing is adding another member to the healthcare system that's already yes. too expensive. And I think once you're a member of the healthcare system, I really wonder if you're able to have an impact the way that doulas yes. have an impact now, right? So, so and let me yeah. respond to that and say, I agree wholeheartedly. Whenever I hear, this is me being a little radical, maybe. But whenever I hear doulas saying, gee, if only insurance companies would pay for doula care, I say, not on my life. I do not want that system determining how I support, care for, and love my clients. Yeah, I mean, it's really... I don't want to have anything yeah, to do with it. It's really, um, it really challenges you once you're part of the system. I think it, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's set up to not, I think it's set up to keep us from really being free in a certain way. Right. So like you're, yeah. you're really going to be limited in what you can do. So I think for me, the bigger question is probably, I mean, question number one, I think the question I care most about is this question around, around race and maternal health and, how do we um, address these really, really horrible disparities for women of color more broadly, but particularly black women in the United States? Um, you know, Latinas and Asian women and Native women have, particularly Latina and Native women, do have higher rates than white women as well. Um, and then some groups of the Asian, like broader Asian community, some particular subgroups, but um, but really black women suffer the the highest disparities. So that question is the one that I, I spend most of my time thinking about. Um, and I don't think that's about doulas. Um, I do. I think doula care, the doula model provides something that is, there's a reason why doulas are so impactful and, and that, that reason is important, but I don't think the person of a doula is, is the key. But if we think, if we talk about the question of like, how do we make sure every person who gives birth or is pregnant is well supported? I think the answer to that is actually more like, we need this skill set of doula. And I wonder what you think about this as a postpartum doula, but I feel like the skill set of a doula is a skill set that should belong to the community and the people who surround a person already. So their family and their friends, I don't think it should be privatized. And so 
I think it's been privatized because we we privatized birth and we pulled people out of their communities and that knowledge is no longer shared anymore. So how do we bring those skills back to the people, the community members? So it's not a, it's not a something you do for pay, but it's something you do for each other because that's what you do, you know? So that's like doula trainings for community members. And, um, and I will give a shout out to Jenny Joseph, this amazing um, midwife and provider in Orlando, who's done a lot of work, to yes. creating a prenatal and postnatal environment that is really effective at reducing these disparities for the black women that she serves. And her whole idea is like, let's give doula skills to people who are already paid to do this kind of work. So she's mm-hmm. really into like, let's give community health workers, like people who already have a paying job in this environment, let's give them doula skills. Like let's nice. not, let's not try to create another person has to be paid, you know? Or, or so like mm-hmm. she works with her receptionists and the, um, nursing assistants and like the people who work in her clinic and all of them are, are encouraged and trained to be this supportive, nurturing, respectful and informative person in that, in that experience. So it's not that you, you get through all these people in your appointment and then you get the doctor who has all the information. It's like actually all of these people along the way are helping you. And that, Mm -hmm. and that's really part of the key of her model. That's been, I mean, she's almost eliminated the disparities like, maternal maternal mortality, infant mortality, low infant birth weight, premature labor in the community that she works, which was just predominantly low income black and Haitian women in Orlando, Florida. So, and if you watch my TED talk, you'll learn more about her model. And isn't that the radical intervention against the very thing that that voice in our heads that say, you're not an interpreter right? That you you limit what you can do by way of loving your, your person, this person that you're right. in relationship to. Yeah. You limit it rather yeah. than you expand it. Right, right. Everybody's a doula. Right, right. Yeah. From the time we're small children. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and I think yeah. the, the, everybody gets yeah. to learn six right. languages right. by the time they're five. Two, you know, like let's do <gasps> two would be good. I mean, you're, you know, lots of other countries are way ahead of us on that front. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the logic behind like a doula is not an interpreter is this idea of like really trying to in- encourage people to stay in their scope, right? Which is a very yes. medical capitalist model, right? But yeah, you don't tell. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't tell a mom who's coaching her daughter on how to breastfeed her grandchild. Well, you're not a lactation consultant. So stop giving her advice about how to breastfeed. It's like she if she breastfed or she's been around other people who breastfed or she read a book about breastfeeding, like let her support her kid. Right. Like so, yeah, I think it's it's sort of the opposite of that is like um, not thinking about professionalized doulas, but thinking about people like and I don't know. And that was something I like to do as a doula was try to. How do I help this partner who's in the room support the person giving birth, right? Like part of my role was to help them step into their role, you know? Um, right. And I think that's. Not step in front. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, people are so worried about that, right? Like oh, I don't want to do that because I have a, a boyfriend or a partner or a husband or a mom who wants to be involved. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think some of this is like we really have to to rely on our community members in a different way and. I think people have those skills. They're just um, discouraged from tapping into them or um, or even the system keeps them out. Like, well, you can't have that many people in the room with you or who's this person who keeps coming with you? Like, why does she, what does she know? You know, stuff like that. Yeah. This has been amazing, Miriam. And you've given me plenty to think about. And I hope that's true for our listeners as well. Um, I think we could join the revolution from this vantage point, don't you? Like, get involved. I was thinking, you know, every mom who could afford a doula could probably afford a doula for somebody else <laughs> or afford to to start um, some sort of collectivization for her community to see that, you know, we can start teaching everybody how to be everybody else's doula, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's like, where can you, how can you just 
think about how to like use your own experiences to support the people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from a more like practical, like, well, we are working in capitalism and it's going to, we have to work within that system. Like, I think, I know that there are some doulas who, who will use a sliding scale. And so mm-hmm. that's subsidizing, you know, support for other people. Or, I mean, I would love to see some broader, like, particularly doulas of color really struggle in making the business work because the populations that they work with, although not all people of color are low income, it's, you're more likely to be low income. Um, mm-hmm. Way. So, more. yeah. So if there was some way to have like a solidarity support fund, you know, where it's like you're mm-hmm. putting money toward um, a doula's work so that she can work or they can work with people who can't afford to pay her. And, you know, honestly, they need yes. the support more than, I mean, everybody, the medical system is shitty for lots of people, but I think the people who really need the support um, are the folks who are least likely to have access to it. So trying to figure out how to redistribute some of those, some of that, um, those resources so that doulas who are working in these communities can get support. So I know there are some models out there, but things, things for folks to think about too. And I think the last thing I'll say is just, you know, I, uh, the, the the thing I learned in that TED Talk, which was about the impact of the ways in which racism and the experience of discrimination has like a physical impact on your health. Um, it, it impacts your physiology through stress and the nervous system. And so and actually some of the research shows that the things that have a, a bigger impact are actually the microaggressions. So the little right. moments every day actually have a huge impact on your well-being. So in all that to say, I think that if we all paid more attention to the ways in which we interact with others, especially for white folks and people with privilege, thinking about the ways in which they interact with um, people of color in their lives all the time and how those might end up being microaggressions that create, like you think, well, I'm not a racist. I don't, you know, I'm not out there saying that we should deport all the immigrants or anything, but like, how do you treat the people that you interact with on a daily basis and and the people in your life and the people who you might interact with in the restaurant or in um, in the grocery store or whatever. So that that because microaggressions have such a big impact, it also means that if you are playing less of a part in enacting them, you also have a positive impact on people's lives. So that's right. Mm-hmm. And something and I can think about. We can all afford to learn alternative behaviors that per, that elicit oxytocin rather right. than cortisol. Right. Right. How do we support There's, people? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And well, I'm sorry to say I'm not remembering the name of the doctor who has done the studies around microaggression. He's got a wonderful TED Talk. I think if people just search microaggression in the TED Talk website, they'll be able to learn a lot about just what you're talking about. I think that's great. Thank you. Well, uh... Thanks again, Miriam, so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, I know this was somewhat of a professional-oriented um, talk, but I think our listeners may find a lot of richness. And I will remind listeners that uh, the first few episodes of our podcasts are specifically about what is postpartum care? How is it done in the practical senses? What does it mean to be cared for when you're healing and recovering from post-pregnancy? And so maybe jump back there and think in terms of What do I have to offer my community based on what I've learned getting through pregnancy and into the postpartum period, whatever that is for me? So, yeah. Thanks so much, everybody. And thanks again, Miriam. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Esther. 
You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man I know you're doing all that you can I wrote the song, simple and true I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you You got your wheels, you got your gears You ride around town without any fear You got your pedals, you got your brakes You always wear your helmet for safety's sake Song, I sing a song for you.